And I'm ready, so come on, baby. Hello, and welcome to Feminasty. I'm Kate Harding, and my co-host is Samita Mukhopadhyay. Say hi, Samita. Hi. Hi, Samita. <laughs> Good. I was hoping that you would do that. <laughs> Today, we are going to talk about reproductive justice with Pamela Merritt, who is a fantabulous activist and friend of the pod. But right now, I wanted to know, Samita... Why do you think that reproductive justice is so important right now? So Pamela, who is like one of the architects of this concept, can talk more in depth about, you know, what exactly reproductive justice is. Um, But I do think that right now, as we face some of the, you know, we're kind of we're kind of facing right now both some of the worst cutbacks to women's access to reproductive health care, but also we're seeing this broader culture that is so rooted in sexism and objectification of women and all of these other things. And for me, when I think about a justice framework, I think about how we look at how all of those things are interrelated and how if you believe that women don't deserve equality and if you think about if you think that they're just sex objects and you dehumanize their bodies you're probably also like that is part of the same thinking that leads to not wanting to give women access to reproductive health care and um i think a justice framework really looks at the entire ecosystem and also looks at how it impacts some of the most disenfranchised people. Um, You know, the pro-choice conversation has always been very, you know, one of the kind of center and and should be, I think, of the feminist movement. But it it hasn't been until recently, and I think through the work of, of, of someone like Pamela that we actually start to talk about how does this impact poor women? How does it impact women of color? And what are the different mechanisms within government and, and society that kind of s- stop women from getting access to care? Absolutely. Um, I w- was just reading Joy Press published an oral history of New York radical women in the cut, which is really interesting. And she included some pieces by people who have passed away just from their writing. So sort of included them in the conversation really seamlessly. And one was Shulamith Firestone. And people kept referring actually to how she had said basically that we will not have equality until babies can grow outside of women's bodies, like until fetuses can develop outside the womb. And and that's fundamental. I mean, obviously that applies to cis women, but it, it is the root of so much oppression of women in general that then even trans women are getting the fallout from people being so freaked out by cis women's yep. reproductive ca- capabilities or imagined reproductive capabilities. And I think it's interesting, too, that, you know, you and I were talking recently about both being women who are child-free and hitting 40, and the way that even within the feminist space, we're finding so much of the narrative is around child-raising, and the, the culture just seeps in everywhere, so you still get this narrative that the only acceptable womanhood is motherhood. And, and I think being able to break that down and, and making it a legitimate choice, like part of the reproductive justice framework is recognizing that not everyone who wants to be a mother gets to be a mother and trying to create access and opportunities and make sure that nobody is being sterilized against their will, that nobody is being prevented from having children because of political reasons. But like so many things, you know, we want this to be a legitimate choice for women 
And it's really not until we can dismantle the patriarchy, essentially, because yeah. it's it's not a choice that happens in a vacuum. It's not just, I want to have kids or I don't. There's so many social pressures that affect those decisions that reproductive justice is about breaking down those pressures. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, I love the way you framed that because we are criticized. So first of all, gender and our expression of gender has been so long you know, fused together with biology and what's biologically possible. And we have the science to advance this now. And the idea that, like, there's something inherent and natural about that I, you know, one of the things I struggled with is, like, I don't naturally, I've never had the desire to be pregnant. Like, I've never been, like, I am just, like, dying to have a baby. When I see a cute baby, I might want to steal it, but that's, like, more a legal issue (laughs) than it is a biological issue, right? It's, It's not, I've just never had that feeling. And you know, and I think that this idea of like womanness, you know, it's very constricting for us because, and I also think it's a very transphobic kind of lens through which we view reproduction, where it's like, oh, this is just like this innate feeling because of this biological function that I have. And it's like, right. it's a much deeper thing than that. And, and I think, you know, when you think about the division of labor when you have children, I, I think that that is a, an area that feminism has yet to fully infiltrate in that so much of the burden falls on women and the justification ends up being biology but like is that is that really why no absolutely and and this is why i saw a thing on twitter last night that honestly i'm not sure how old it was it might have been new it might have been old i've certainly seen the concept going around before but that single women actually are reasonably you know they're happy as long as they can get away all of the the pressure to partner up and to be you know to to get into this very narrow framework of what womanhood means because we've seen studies forever married men have their quality of life improve and married women have it go down talking about heterosexual marriages because even if you go into it both feeling like you know you're super feminist it's going to be equal it just never is because cis men are not socialized to do half the housework, to think. And and the thing that always happens is that the men would do it if they were asked, but the women do it without waiting to be asked. So, I mean, some of that is communication. Some of that is willingness to, you know, tolerate some dirt. Like in in our relationship, I'm definitely the bigger slob. And so (laughs) my cis white male husband actually cleans the apartment a lot of the times and is just disgusted with me. and, And that's fair. But that is also incredibly rare. And... And that generally, like, you know, men are raised not to see it because somebody else will come along and pick it up. Honestly, and I've seen so many women, when they do have kids, suddenly find out that their relationship is not as equal as they thought it was and that their partner is not ready. And Or even, um, sorry, I'm off on a tear right now. I had friends where, you know, this is a good guy. I love him a lot. But when they had a baby suddenly it was like he was faced with feeling incompetent for kind of the first time in his life where he was this very very smart and talented and successful white cis man but within this this new framework of parenthood he had no confidence that he could solve problems even though that was like his whole job was just solving problems and this is the this is the one area where women are raised to feel that we will be competent, that we can just kind of face it and take it, that we are equipped to handle this because we get those messages our whole lives. And so nobody with their first baby knows what the hell they're doing. Like, this is a thing, but 
women are supposed to figure it out and men are supposed to sit there and be helpless. And then that ends up being an unequal distribution of labor just because we don't even raise men with the confidence to believe that they can solve the problem of what does a baby need? Yeah. Yeah. They're so coddled from that process. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. So basically what you're calling for is the removal of our uteruses to some external laboratory. I mean, what are we talking about here, Kate? Like, what is the, what is Uh, the... (laughs) I mean, that sounds fine to me. (laughs) (laughs) We're the feminists you're scared of. (laughs) But, um, But yeah, I mean, it all does come down to that basic fact. I mean, obviously not all of it, that there are so many reasons for women's oppression and so many different kinds of women who are oppressed, whether or not uh, they have uteruses. But the history of patriarchy is so much rooted in this binary idea of some people have the babies and some people get to do everything else in the world. Um, And I think reproductive justice looks at all of the ways that that plays out and contributes to the oppression of marginalized groups. Yeah. And and I will say that uh, the reason I'm laughing is you know, about this kind of, like, science fiction future, I think one of the things that I really got into in undergrad was cyber feminist theory Ah, and kind of the idea of the cyborg and the way that, like, women's oppression is rooted in their physical bodies and it's when we can imagine outside of that and possibility outside of that. Um, You know, and and I know this is a controversial thing to say in today's America, but I am (laughs) pro-science and (laughs) the things that science can give us, but I do, you know, I am interested in you know, science fiction ideas about the body and worlds in which, you know, like when I read Octavia Butler, some of my favorite science fiction authors, you know, that so much, and this is, I think, also for people of color and women of color and for trans-identified people, is that, like, so much of our physical body is what brings us oppression, that, like, the way that we're read in the world and the way that we're understood and the way that people make assumptions about us based on what we look like, and that has always been such a fascinating part of kind of feminism to me because it's such an unexplored part. Yeah, absolutely. Well, perhaps we'll explore that on a future episode, but right now let's uh, kick it over to Pam and have a little chat with her. This week on Feminasty, we are so excited to be talking to our old friend, Pamela Merritt. Pamela Merritt is co-founder and co-director of ReproAction, a direct action group that formed to increase access to abortion and advance reproductive justice. Merritt is a founding member of the Trust Black Women Partnership, and she's been a featured contributor on National Public Radio. Her writing's been published all over the place, including her personal blog, angryblackbitch.com, which was named one of the world's 50 most powerful blogs by The Guardian in 2008. We have known her for all of those nearly 10 years. The three of us were all in the feminist blogging trenches together from that far back. So we're so excited to have Pamela here today and to get to talk to her about what justice means. Pamela, I was wondering if you could maybe start off by giving us a bullet point description of what reproductive justice means. Oh, goodness. That's a great way to start. So reproductive justice is um, it is intersectional. 
And it is a liberation movement that is focused on dismantling reproductive oppression. So as a reproductive justice activist, I'm fighting for people to have the right to determine whether or not to parent, to be able to have the supports from society and their community to parent their chosen families um, in the way that they see fit, and also Mm -hmm. to live in communities that are free of violence and oppression. That is terrific. Do you want to talk a little bit about what ReproAction does to try and move us closer to a world where we have reproductive justice? Absolutely. So ReproAction is a direct action organization. So we are organizing direct actions, taking the demands um, in the fight to dismantle reproductive oppression directly to the people who are upholding it. And we not we we don't necessarily just attack or <laughs> or take actions to the right. We we are basically holding the left and the right people who call themselves allies and the opposition accountable to people and to reproductive justice. And we are working to increase access to abortion and advance reproductive justice. So what that means is that we organize national campaigns and also we have direct action organizers on the ground in Missouri and in Northern Virginia. We also will do campaigns in other states. We just did an awesome action in Atlanta for Netroots. And we will do a lot of research and put together a campaign that both educates the public on a problem for example, crisis pregnancy centers, which are fake anti-abortion clinics, or uh, when we're talking about infant or maternal mortality, we want to also educate the public, give them a language that is unapologetically in support of abortion rights and access, and unapologetically intersectional, and in, 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 um, centering women of color, black women, and people who face oppression in our work. Wow. So you're superheroes, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. By the standards of this podcast, that is the correct diagnosis there. So, um, Samita, do you want to jump in? Yeah. I think, Pam, you know, we've like professionally known each other for so long and, and, and as friends. And one thing I've always, you know, found really interesting about the work that you do is while you come from this you know, background and spirit of justice and really rethinking and reimagining what reproductive justice could look like. You've been really instrumental at working through kind of existing infrastructure to sometimes meet those goals. You know, whether that's the work that you've done with Planned Parenthood or the ACLU. How do you balance those two things? Because I think a lot of young people right now feel very angry at the system right and so they are organizing whether you know and I think that's part of the seduction of Bernie Sanders even though that's like a whole other conversation um, (laughs) about you know how how anti-establishment he actually is but um, you know I think many young people are kind of grappling with you know being angry at a system but not really understanding how to bring this desire for justice to kind of quantifiable ways and so, yeah, I'm just wondering how you kind of balance those. There are days when I don't balance it very well. <laughs> so, so the first thing I'll say is it's a work in progress. But I've been doing this work for over a decade. And I think the, the first thing I, I try to focus on is that when I'm working within 
you know, the establishment, however that's being defined, that I'm not of it, mm-hmm. that you have to, you really do have to do a lot of inner work and, and, I, and know yourself, know your values and know where you're centered in the work that you do. Otherwise, you will, you know, working with an established organization doesn't mean that you're trying to appease them or that you are trying to somehow uh, set back or, or suppress your anger. It's about, you know, approaching them from your centered space. So one of the things that I've always been frustrated by is this idea that, you know, I'm, I'm mad at this establishment entity. And I really want them to do better, but I'm, I'm not going to take that challenge directly to them. And I don't speak mm-hmm. passive aggressive. I don't understand it. <laughs> I, so I don't, I, 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 don't, I don't want people to think that that's my indictment of, of folks who are frustrated with the establishment. But I, I think there's a misconception that I'm that I have have picked up from folks who are rightfully so in many cases railing against the establishment there's a misconception that you have to set aside your core values and your core beliefs and that if you are working or challenging the establishment and there's a huge difference between challenging the establishment and forcing them to confront how they're not up to standard, up to par, or how they're being hypocritical, or how they themselves are advancing oppression. There's that this idea that you can't do that without somehow sacrificing something within yourself. And the reality is you can't do that gently. You're not going to be able to do. You're not going to be able to do that in a in a pleasant way, but you can do it. So the first thing that I had to come to terms with is that all of all of the work that I'm doing and confrontations that I'm having aren't always the most comfortable conversations. There's a huge difference between uh, having a focus of just dismantling the establishment versus you getting the establishment to get its shit together. So yeah. people can make either decision. And I'm certainly not in the business of trying to tell folks to do, but I see, I don't see a lot of people um, who are organizing in a way that will dis- destroy the establishment. Mm-hmm. So if you're not organizing, if you're not going to organize to destroy it, then you are, you are either going to continue to have it be the thing that you bitch about right. every day or um, you or you need to try to fix it. So one it's either one or the other and folks need to make a decision and then organize accordingly. So I think the great challenge within ourselves is if we look at an establishment organization or entity that we're frustrated with, do I want to destroy it? Mm-hmm. And is that is that destruction necessary to advance justice, or do I want to create an, a, a enough pressure and a movement that forces it to shift left? Yeah. And once once we make that decision, then we need to organize accordingly. So that's a scary that's a scary strategy for people to walk through. And I think uh, there are people out there who prefer to step back from that fear. And I understand that. But I also think one thing that I 
I see as a common shared value is that we're frustrated with the establishment. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would love for folks to put together a strategy that shows how destroying the establishment helps us get to our goals yes. because I'm in this movement. I'm, I'm an activist. I'm in a movement for justice. If we achieve justice and it is a sustainable thing, then the next week I'm on a beach sipping a drink. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm here for it. But I, but I also think, uh, you know, I tend to be a strategy, um, a strategy junkie and so I'm like if I don't see a strategy that helps us achieve justice then I, I'm not there for it so right. if we if we agree that this organization or this movement part of the progressive movement is flawed how do we fix that yeah yes um so all right so there are a lot of calls for unifying the progressive movement the democratic party but there are two camps right now that are kind of you know, in opposition and also really still hurting from the primary and and from what a lot of us perceive as this kind of fundamental split between those who want to destroy the establishment and those who are okay with incremental progress if it means progress. And so you you spoke to that a lot, but I'm just wondering... I'm starting to kind of kick around the idea that maybe we don't need unity. Maybe we just need to be moving on parallel tracks toward our, you know, sustained goal of or our shared goal of justice. Uh, what do you think about that idea? I personally think that that you can't unify two pieces that don't connect. So right now we've got jagged edges on one side and we've got jagged edges on the other side and we need to go in and and take a file to both sides and clean off those jagged edges before it's going to ever fit. So it's not going to lock solid and and what's not lock solid can easily break apart. So I think we all have a lot of work to do. We are we are we should be focused on the policies that help us liberate oppressed people and advance justice. And if we focus on the policies, that is a debate I am willing to have and unify behind. How do we get health care to people? How do we make it so that my brother with autism doesn't have to scrabble together to get his basic needs met? How do we make sure that abortion access isn't something that's a right and name only? How do we make sure that black people and brown people aren't subject to state violence? Those are the issues issues we should be talking about and there are policies behind those issues that actually help us move towards a progressive left if we could have that discussion and then find some candidate who is mostly there because this idea that any candidate anybody who is interested in running for office is going to be even close to perfect is bullshit right so so this, so if we have the policies, and then we need to, as a movement, if we unify, or even if we run on parallel tracks, those parallel tracks are still going to have to come to an understanding that our job begins after election day. So after you elect people, you then have more work to do to make sure that they freaking do their job. Because yes. politicians, anybody running for office, has, is, has already conceded that they want to negotiate and compromise. That's what politicians yes. do. 
And either they do that or they just fuck shit up. And what we've got in (laughs) Congress right now, Congress right now is just a mess full of people who are like, well, I'm a strict this and I'm a strict that. And, and that, that's why they're not doing anything. And they weren't, and it's not a party thing. If they were Democrats, they wouldn't be doing anything either. So we as people need to not just identify the policies that advance justice, but fall in love with them. I want us to have a love affair with policy that advances justice and be committed to, yeah, and get into a committed relationship with it. And then the politician is the tool. They are not the solution. They are the tool. So I, I think if we can all come together in a room and talk through the reality of, of, of what's on the table, and there are going to be moderates who are going to say, I don't think we can do that. And then there's going to be far, people to the far left who are like, I, I believe that we can win. And that is, that's fine. And that does not need to be unified in agreement. Those, those two areas can move together. What we can't do is continue to relitigate mm-hmm. a, an election based on candidates. Yes. What we, yeah. I would prefer that we re, if we're going to revisit 2016, we revisit it on policy. Yeah, and I think that, so one of, the, one of my big reflections is having both worked at the grassroots, but, you know, the majority of my work mm-hmm. in the last decade has been, you know, on the net roots, is the growing divide between how people understand incremental change to happen at the local level versus the conversations that are happening around these candidates that are so mired in kind of ego and personal identity and, and you know, these kind of like broader ways that young people and I think just people more broadly are connecting with politics. But this kind of deep lack of understanding of how systemic or small bits of change work, right? And, 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 and how organizing works and even how you get ballot measures passed, right? And even kind of, mm-hmm. I think one really good example of that to me was the Heath Mellow stuff, right? Where there was such a disconnect with how local organizers felt about him versus how he was talked about nationally or even by the DNC, right? And, and, and I feel like that kind of disconnect, I feel like it's getting agitated by online conversations. I'd be curious to know, Pam, because I know you're like a proto, like early feminist blogger and, but so much of your career has, you know, been organizing at the local level. Like what do you, like, what do you see as the role of kind of national media and specifically like, you know, Twitter and like these, these kind of very big public conversations we're having that really have shifted the way the public is thinking about these candidates and the role that that like plays in in moving the political conversation yeah it is it is fascinating to watch folks champion national solutions like broad giant you know three thousand thirty thousand feet solutions and 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 legitimately have the faith that those solutions will, will trickle down into the local. So I, I, I try to, when we, when we start talking about the national discussion, um, I'm great. I'm incredibly frustrated. I live in St. Louis, Missouri. I live deep in a red state. Um, so we are in, in the battle for the future of this state for the, you know, and we're talking about the future for this state for the next 20 to 50 years. So when 
when I hear people talk about policies as if it is, as if it's going to trickle down through a filter in Missouri that is designed to negate those policies, I, I, my blood pressure shoots up. We have, we have to start, politics is local, and we have work to do here to create an environment where you can even plant the seeds of some of the policies that people are talking about on a national level. And then the discussion also tends to ignore the, the entire middle of the country and the, in the South. So, you know, we, we who live in red states and organize in red states know that local politics is often where you can make incredible change, but it's also where the left has, for whatever reason, um, little interest in investing. And I honestly think that one of, that there's something there that the reason why this national discussion appeals is that it feels like it's more doable and that people are like, oh, that's going to be hard. Well, no shit, it's hard. And that's, that's where we need to really invest a lot of our time and energy because if we, if we changed major policy nationally, I think we've got the last five years should show us that it, what, it will not trickle down into the local level. So we have to organize locally. Nothing we do in this wonderful 30,000 feet discussion is going to affect and improve the lives of people who are, who are in, in hostile territory if we don't do local organizing. So that's the first thing that my, my head goes to. Um, also, the, the reality that we as a nation are defined by the entire United States and territories. So if, if I live in St. Louis and the last time I visited California um, earlier this year, I remarked to my friends when I got back home that it was like visiting a different country and <laughs> that people there were taught, were frustrated about things that, as a Missourian, I would be thrilled to be able to be frustrated by. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's, there, I, I would, I would love for there to be some capacity or some funding for us to just do a tour and go ahead and get some folks who are doing red state or blue state work to come to the middle, come to the upper south stay for a while and get a good feel for what we're up against. Right now, I've got the National Guard stationed all over my city because a white cop killed a black person and didn't get indicted and there's protests. So I would love for people to not watch that on the news, but to come join us and really get a feel for what we're up against and then go back home and start talking about policies that help us advance justice. Because if we achieve justice in the most hostile place, then that justice will float up. I'm not into trickle down. Yes. I want to float up. Yes. So this is making me think as someone who um, I have moved to three different states in the last few years. And so <laughs> I have no roots in my community that I just moved to two months ago. What would be your suggestion to someone who's looking to get into local politics, maybe with or without roots in the community? Maybe someone's just never done it before. or Maybe someone's new to a place where do you start? That's a great question. So the first 
place that I would start if I moved to a different city is the, the first thing I would do is really go to the core organizations that I'm already familiar with and see if they're on the ground. So if you are an abortion rights activist, you can look for your local abortion fund. Look for, if there is reproductive justice organization on the ground, look for them and, and really get a feel for what they're doing and what you can do to help support that work. The same thing applies for work around, you know, rights for the undocumented or any one of the many oppressions that is that people are organizing around. The second thing I would recommend that people do is is listen. And there's a lot of listening that needs to go on. So, <laughs> you know, what first appear like what might first appear to be an awesome solution in a great group after three months could you're like, Oh my God, these people are a hot mess. So, (laughs) so give yourself some time to really assess who is about work and versus who is about some sort of political agenda or personal agenda. But I think the, the look for local groups that are doing work and try to connect to them. The other thing is that, you know, the local press for even though it's been assault, it's under assault, there's mm-hmm. definitely less local media, but finding local press and if you just did a week of kind of watching that content, you'd get a really good feel for what's in play in that moment and who is doing what. But I think sitting back for a little while and but participating, participating to listen is key. And then the most important thing that people can do is is quickly connect to what they need out of a community because if you're if you're setting up your healthcare and you're setting up you know even as simple as you know figuring out where you can walk your dog where you, where you go grocery shopping where um, where do where do people who are affected by domestic violence go what are, what's the treatment of the homeless all of those things that you experience in your everyday walk through your community are going to give you a really good gauge for what's working what's not working and who is trying to tackle it All right. Thank you for that. That is terrific suggestions. Or those are terrific suggestions. (laughs) Samita, have you got more? Um, No, I think think we can do our closing question. This was... All right. Thank you so much for those suggestions, Pam. Those were great. And now we are going to move on to the question that we always ask our guests. Samita? Pam, what makes you a nasty woman? (laughs) I am a nasty woman because I am relentless. I am, I I am focused on justice. I am in this movement for justice and liberation and I am relentless. My eyes are focused on that. My work is geared towards that and, and I'm prepared to be as nasty as I need to be to achieve it. Yes. I feel like all I've done for this entire interview is just go yes to everything you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what happens when you talk to Pam Merritt. So. Um, and how can we find you on the internet? So you can find me on the internet on Twitter 
at I am at Shark Fu S H A R K F U. And for ReproAction, it's ReproAction.org. And that's the same for ReproAction on Facebook and on uh, Twitter. And my blog, which I have neglected to update in forever because I've been so busy with post-election activism, but my blog is AngryBlackBitch.com. Yes. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Um, and so invigorating. This was fun. <laughs> this was a lot of fun. Thank y'all. Thank you. Before we end for today, we always want to leave you on a hopeful note. So we're going to be talking again about what gives us hope in the dark. And Kate, this week, I have to say, <laughs> and this is completely an endorsement from the heart. <laughs> I have to say that Jacqueline Friedman's new book, Unscrewed, which I got to read last week and host an event with her. Um, and she was also a feministy guest, um, one of our first guests. And it is such a good book. It's this really rigorous look at the way that faux empowerment and capitalism and all of these different factors, sexism, have really impacted our sex lives in a way that we don't even think about or realize. And I found it to be very revelatory as I was reading it. Uh, you know, Yeah, Jacqueline is fantastic. She's been doing this work for so many years. And it is, it, this book feels like, you know, one of those moments where you see a person's entire life work kind of like come together and crystallize. And Uh, We're so proud of her, and it absolutely gives me hope for the future that Jacqueline is out there doing this work alongside us and contributing such an important voice to our cultural conversation. Yeah, and and what can give you more hope in the dark than, like, fully self-realized and really good sex? Seriously. (laughs) So thanks for that, Jacqueline. You know what else gives us hope? Our audience. You've been sending your voice memos, so we're going to end with you. Keep submitting audio, rating, subscribing, and remember... Stay nasty. Hi, my name is Regina, and I currently reside in Texas. I am a nasty woman for a lot of reasons. I exist in Texas as a queer, biracial, very outspoken feminist in a very conservative place like Texas. I have recognized, especially in the workplace, that my viewpoints are oftentimes in the minority, especially as a teacher, because Texas likes to uphold very conservative social values. And that's just not my jam. So that's one reason why I'm a nasty woman.